Now it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Penny Mishkin, a retired occupational therapist and now the author of a terrific book, How I See It, A Personal and Historical View of Disability. Penny Mishkin, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I am really happy that we're having this conversation and excited to share you, your story, what you're working on now, you know, writing about your experiences, about your life. That all, I feel, has a lot to teach any and all of us. And so, again, thank you for being here. And to that point, we're here to talk about disability in general, more specifically the fact that you are blind, you you live with blindness, and it's something that you knew was going to be coming on into your life because it was progressive. Is that the correct way to phrase it? Yes. Um, I'll even go a little deeper. Actually, they thought, uh, my eye doctor thought I was going blind when I was three years old. So it's a condition I've lived with my whole life. And I actually feel I was very lucky because it didn't start happening until my early 60s. And up until that point, I was corrected with contact lenses to 2040, which allows you to drive though there are many people in my family who wished I had not been allowed to drive. (laughs) I was not a good driver. So I feel lucky that it didn't happen sooner. But when it did happen, it was, I don't know if shocking is the right way, it was just this huge change. And it was gradual in the sense that first my right eye went blind and then my left eye. So the left eye took over for the right eye and then the left eye went. And then the left eye went very abruptly. But I was prepared. I was in the sense that it wasn't a shock. You know, it's not like I was in a car accident and suddenly became blind. Um, it was something actually I was very afraid, afraid of my entire life. But I also think my childhood somehow, I think I adjusted faster than many people would because I was a low vision child. So even though I wore eyeglasses, I only saw 2100, which is the second line on the eye chart. So I already knew how to compensate, and i guessing I had already developed a certain amount of strength and resilience, you know, a serious eye issue. So and I think it probably made it easier for me, although I wish I had never had it when I was a child. <laughs> but I think it made my adjustment to it easier. I wasn't uh, aware that it really happened at age 60, and yet... Of course, given the choice, you'd rather not have to deal with that. And yet, with the way that you have lived your life, the way that you're handling this, I think is all just such a a learning experience, but that you're sharing with us that hopefully we can glean something and whatever it is that is, quote, our disability, whether it's physical or otherwise in our life, right. it might help us to navigate Well, here's, I have to admit, because I like being honest, that when I was aware that I was starting to lose the vision, because it was gradual at first, it was very gradual, but, you know, at first I couldn't see at night, and then, you know, then I had to get a magnifier for work, you know, I was an occupational therapist, and I worked with children on different things where sometimes I needed to use a magnifying device. I did feel sorry for myself, so I don't want to sound, and and there is that period of adjustment, but I was also very fortunate in that I was in analysis, 
and my shrink wouldn't tolerate it. Mm. He said, Penny, something happens to everybody. And, you know, if you live long enough, something does happen to everybody. It could be physical. It could be an emotional loss. And I didn't like hearing that, mm. I'll be very honest. <laughs> but I'm very happy he did not not indulge me and it did not allow me to feel sorry for myself. Instead, what he recruited was my strength, my perseverance, my resilience. And the fact that I was an occupational therapist was also very helpful in two different ways. I'd worked with people with really serious disabilities like, you know, quadriplegia, strokes, and, and so on. I, I mean, I think most people probably consider blindness right up there with those. But I knew from working with these patients how different people dealt with it. And the other thing is that I also knew, um, I had learned this earlier, I had a choice. I could be, you know, a lot of people would think, oh, my God, you poor thing, you're blind, blah, 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 that's so horrible. And it is. I mean, you know, I completely understand that someone might think that way. But if I lived my life that way, I'd be miserable all the time. Mm -hmm. And I did learn in my analysis, I have a choice. I can be miserable or I can be happy. And I'm going to choose happy. And, well, and most people can do that, and quite honestly, because of the patients I worked with, I knew that. And I worked with a 16-year-old with, who was a quadriplegic. How do you choose happy at the age of 16? Like the patients I worked with when I was shortly out of OT school, they were remarkable. But we all can choose happy. Here's, here's the way I view it. If you live long enough, you're going to get something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and hopefully you live long enough to get something. And I consider it like a detour. It's like, okay, you're on one path. You think your life is going one way. And, of course, this can happen when you're younger. You know, you could be in a plane crash and suddenly be, you know, a paraplegic. Your life has, is now on a major detour. But if you can accept that it's a detour, but it doesn't mean it's misery and that, it, that you have to, you know, with help, of course, you have to find your way back on a path that gives you happiness. You know, like with a detour, you, you know, you go around, it might take longer and so on. And it really is possible. I'd say the only time it's not possible is if you have some kind of mental illness or dementia or something like that. So there are exceptions. Certainly. But, you know, from my point of view, why would I choose miserable? <laughs> doesn't make any sense. Right. I'm right there with you. And, and as you share this, and really are in the hell realm of vision and loss of it, and I, it brings to mind my mother, who in her 90s, macular degeneration was already obviously beginning to work into her loss of vision, but she didn't realize that. There wasn't really the understanding of what it was. So when it really hit hard, it was depressing for her. And she, by then she was 95, 96. So well, okay. I, at that age, it, it is kind of hard, but it, it was upsetting to me. And it was also a lesson. I think that's the thing here with uh -huh. your story, with those around us, we can learn and hopefully make good choices for ourselves going down the road. Well, I do have macular degeneration. Actually, that's part of what I have. I also have glaucoma. And between the two of them, and no one knows, you know, no, I've, all the doctors I've been to, they're not sure why things develop 
exactly mm. the way they developed. But um, I do have it. But what I'm 73, so I'm not a spring chicken. But at 73, I have much more available to me in resources than your mom did at whatever age. Plus, as I said, I was always expecting it. Mm. So yes. it's not that I knew what I would do. And also mine came on, I think it started, yeah, it did start probably when I was around 60. And it was gradual, and also I, I learned how to compensate. And it happened in one eye more than the other. So the left eye took over for the right eye. So I actually, although it may sound strange, I really feel lucky the way it unfolded. And, you know, so, so I, don't, I don't, I try not to judge anyone, but... Mm. It's much harder. On the one hand, your mom was lucky that she didn't get it until her 90s. But on the other hand, it's much more difficult to deal with it when you've got other issues. True. Yes, that is absolutely so. And the fact is, I was thinking of that when you were saying you you were feeling sorry for yourself, that you're human. We're all human beings having an experience, and we have these choices as to how we want to approach our life. As you said, you choose happy. Yeah, I didn't feel sorry for myself that long, and actually, partly that if I have to give credit <laughs> to the anal- analyst I went to, he he wouldn't tolerate it. Right. I mean, I'm trying to remember it. He said, "Penny, everybody gets something. This is just what you got, you know." And what he added was because I had vision problems as a child, as a you know, since I was two. Well, it was diagnosed when I was two. He said back then it really was unfair, in the sense that. You know, it was very unusual to have the kind of problem I had at such a young age. He said, but now he basically is telling me I'm old. You're old. So everyone's <laughs> going to get something. And he never said, you know, you can choose miserable or happy. But from what he told me, I realized I really had a choice. And it, it made no sense to choose miserable, which isn't to say I didn't have a grieving period. I did. It was an adjustment, you know, and everyone has to go through that, whether it's the loss of a loved one or something else. But I think most of us can adjust and choose happy. It's, I mean, my life is totally different than it was 10 years ago. Yeah, I can't go anywhere on my own because my vision's too poor. Things are much harder and much more exhausting. So... I went to the doctor yesterday for something, and it felt like I, I used to be a runner. felt like I just run, run seven miles because, you know, everything is more difficult. Now, I can, you know, so like with your mom, at 95, everything's already more difficult. Mm-hmm. So now you add this on top of it. And here's the thing. It's not just with adults, with children as well, which I wrote in my book. If you have a disability, it's exhausting because you're compensating. You're doing the best you can. So children are often misunderstood for having a meltdown or, you know, doing something, you know, not misbehaving, but being in a bad mood or, you know, being difficult. And, you know, just because I worked with kids, some of it is just they're just exhausted. They've been in school all day. They're compensating all day long and they just have nothing left to give. So, but it's it's true of children, and it's also true of adults, depending on the disability. And you know, just as a sidebar, taking a slight detour here, I'm glad you mentioned that about children. That does bring to mind someone I know, 
who, with a child who has a challenge in their life, why yeah. they might act the way they do, that exhaustion piece, it really is a key thing to remember, lets us be perhaps more understanding and compassionate. Well, here's what happens for a lot of kids. I'm trying to remember. Oh, I this was my cousin's grandson and or granddaughter. I don't remember which. And they have something called sensory processing disorder, which means that you experience sensory information either too much or too little. So, for example, this little, oh, it was a girl. She couldn't stand the noise of a toilet flushing. I mean, you and I wouldn't think twice about it. Mm. Would put her hands over her ears if the vacuum cleaner was on. Outside, you know, if she heard an ambulance siren, couldn't tolerate it. But apparently, they didn't even know this at school. She was just compensating and being such a good girl in school all day long. And then she'd come home and she would completely melt down. She would be, and she would be very difficult. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I told my cousin this. They said the fact that she can hold it together in school so that her teachers are unaware of it is phenomenal. This child has a tremendous amount of resilience. And I spoke to her mom about it, who really was very understanding which is very helpful to children, to know that someone else understands. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it will get easier as she gets older and she understands herself better and she can explain it to other people. But it's huge in children, you know, especially with what I call invisible disabilities. Exactly. And we can be, as a people, we can be so judgmental on that level. How do we deal with that? How do we become more understanding or give people leeway? Like maybe there's an issue as to why this person is doing things the way that they do, or they're parking in a disability slot. They don't look like they need that. Right. Right. Here's, I'll tell you what I've done. So when I could still go out on my own and my depth perception was very poor as well as my vision, I would say to someone, excuse me, you know, I'm in New York City. I'd say, excuse me. 99.9% of the time, people would say what I would say, or you would say, oh, I'm sorry, and they would just move over and get out of my way. Every once in a while, someone would say to me, well, you have plenty of room, and they wouldn't move. And what I did was I took it as an opportunity to educate them. Ah. And I said, you know, I, I have very poor depth perception. I really don't want to bump into you, and that's why I've said, excuse me. Mm -hmm. All right, one person didn't budge, and then I accidentally, I hope you think this is funny, I didn't do it on purpose, but I actually did bump into him, (laughs) and I said, this is why I asked you to move over a bit. I mean, it was crazy. And then there was another woman where, same thing, I explained, because I try to educate, and she said, oh, okay, now I understand. Again, I don't completely understand why she didn't just move over. What is the big deal? (laughs) But I take the opportunity to try to educate people. I don't know whether it works or it doesn't. It certainly didn't work with the guy who I bumped into. (laughs) But with the other woman, I think it made her feel better, and I think it would make her think twice. What she said to me was, you have plenty of room. I don't need to move over for you. I mean, it was so hurtful. Yes. And then I go, well, I'm, I'm what, you know, now, now it's different because I'm always with someone. But I find that, and I actually, children cannot do this, but I find if you explain that it goes both ways, that there's a responsibility the disabled person has in letting the other person know that you have a disability because sometimes they're invisible. 
you know, obviously if you're in a wheelchair, it's not invisible. You know, if you're using a cane, it's visible. But there are situations like mine, it was invisible. And so I found that the more I explained what was going on with me, the nicer someone was. And actually, and there was a connection made. So I would often hear, oh, my goodness, like you did with your mom. I remember telling an Uber driver or something that I would need help getting out of the car. And he then go, you know, because I was blind. And he would then go, oh, my sister's blind. Mm -hmm. And there would be this whole connection that ordinarily, you know, especially in a place like New York City, would not have been made. So I do feel I have a responsibility to let the person know why I need help. It makes it easier for them, and they're likely to, they're not going to always be kinder to you, but it's more likely. And then it's kind of a win-win. They feel gratified that they've helped you. Like there was this woman, a TSA person at the airport. This was 10 years ago when I felt much better, and I could still travel by myself. But I couldn't see where the escalator was to get to my gate. So I told her, and even though she wasn't supposed to, she took me to the escalator. She wasn't supposed to leave her post. And she told me her sister was blind. Mm. And I'm pretty sure that it was gratifying to her to help someone in the way she would wish her sister would be helped. Yes. Isn't that so? You just feel that this might be energy in motion, that this good deed somewhere down the line will be repaid somehow. And We'll all be taking better care of each other. Oh, yeah, I no, there's no question about it. It, it doesn't happen with everyone. No. I mean, there are people who are very self-centered and don't care. But I think they're the exception. They are not the rule. And my experience is for the last, it's been three years now, that people just want to help you. Like I was at the, my internist office yesterday, and I had someone with me, but I had to get up on the exam table, and I there was a step stool, whatever. I said, let's get somebody else. <laughs> I don't want you to get hurt, and I certainly don't want to fall. And I find it's interesting. Look, if you could wave a magic wand and my vision would be restored, I'd say hurry up. Yes. But there are truly gratifications and satisfactions and very moving moments when people do help you and they do treat you really with tremendous kindness. And I, I really do think most people do, even in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> Where there's a good test uh, situation, right? Where you have millions of people and you're still yeah. finding kindness. <gasps> oh, this happened to me the other... Okay, so I fell and I broke my collarbone, which is not that big a deal, but you have to wear a sling. So that makes every, it makes everything harder. So I'm taking an Uber home with my companion from the orthopedist and... I've learned how to do it better now. But the sling was under my jacket. and I mean, I, you know, so I'm only with one. Anyway, I'm having trouble getting into the Uber just with my companion. And the driver comes out to help me, too. Still having trouble. And this woman just comes over to me because she can see I'm ha having a lot of difficulty. And she goes, I've got you. I'm holding your oh. back. You, mm -hmm. you do not need to worry. You are not going to fall. So I had... Clara, my assistant, my PA, and I had the drive. It took three people to get me into the car. <laughs> but this woman, she spent a lot of time with me. Oh. It took about five minutes for me to get safely into the car. And I thanked her so much. I wish I knew who she was and I had her address and I could send her some flowers to thank her. <laughs> but I think it gave her pleasure to help me. Yes. 
she is that kind of person. And I think there are many these kinds of people in the world and who see this and it's an opportunity to show a kindness, to do a good yeah. act. And uh, you know, if we can see that, what a gift that is. And in that way, you were open to accepting. I don't know if people would reject that, but to know that you need help or ask for help, you know, that really takes also well, some energy. This is in my book. You know, our culture, the American culture really values independence too much and I think has the wrong definition of what independence is. You know, independence is doing everything by yourself and never asking for help. And when I was growing up in the 50s, that was it. That was only it. You know, it's a sign of weakness to ask for help. I actually think it's a sign of strength to ask for help. It means you're not ashamed, you're not embarrassed, and you're protecting yourself. And I really do think that the people who won't help you are the exception, not the rule, although you wouldn't believe it if you watch television these days, <laughs> if you watch the news these days. But my experience is that most people are very gratified by helping you. Yes, but it isn't easy to ask in, in our culture. It is easy for me now, because otherwise I'll, I'll break something. But it's really very satisfying to be able to ask for help. I mean, I don't ask for it when I don't need it, you know, because I like to be, still be able to do whatever I can do. But, you know, I grew up in that culture where asking for help was considered a sign of weakness, and it really isn't. And the American with Disabilities Act and other legislation that's been passed has really, I think, changed a lot of people's minds about that. You know, that there is no shame in asking for help. It doesn't mean you're weaker. It doesn't mean you're less than. But that's how it was viewed when I was growing up. Yes. And that is a very good point, that there has been so much that we've improved in our world, you know, from, say, the sidewalks and having them uh, contoured so that wheelchairs or someone with a walker can navigate that more easily. Also, someone who is blind and uses a cane is able right. to feel that texture. And having Braille in elevators or in restaurants yeah. on menus, you know, that heightened awareness of making that available, that this is another way of communicating. Can I tell you a really sweet story? Please. I have an 11-year-old grandnephew, and he's actually on the, he's got like Asperger's, and so he's interested in things that, you know, when he goes on his iPad, he doesn't play video games. He looks up information. So he was coming to New York to visit, and we had dinner together every night. He went online to learn Braille mm. so he could teach it to me. <gasps> Can you imagine an 11-year-old? And I think that's partly because he has a disability, mm -hmm. so he knows it firsthand. And I do think the culture has really changed. You know, kids are given, it's not just kids, but, you know, it's like our world has changed. In other words, there are now, ramps have to be there to get into housing or an office building. Mm -hmm. uh, the Braille has to be in the elevator, as you mentioned. Most places now have a button you can push Oh, they absolutely have to have an exit or an ingress, I guess, where you push the handicap button. Yes. So it's much easier for you. And the buses in New York City, I don't know where about it elsewhere, but they have to kneel to allow someone in a wheelchair to get on all by themselves. And we have that here in Seattle as well. Right? Oh, good. Yes. But it's been mandated. You know, this really didn't start until the 70s. Mm -hmm. And this was started by activists, people with disabilities, who want to be treated differently, and they have changed the world 
for anyone with a disability. Not enough, I have to say that. But now I'm trying to be an activist myself. For example, you know how when you call, let's say you call Verizon, and I'm mentioning them because they're one of the worst ones. Apple's fantastic, by the way. But anyway, you and American Express is fantastic. But you call and you say representative, and they go, well, we'll send you a code to get a representative. <laughs> well, I can't read the code. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there needs to be more access for blindness. There are other disabilities, Parkinson's disease, something where you can't use your hands to push a button without maybe hitting the wrong button. So there needs more to be done. But the passing of the ADA was absolutely phenomenal. Oh, Penny Mishkin, it is so wonderful to have this conversation. We could talk for hours. But isn't it terrible that these, these shows are just limited? So... While we need to really wrap this up, I want to be sure that we mention your website to begin with. Oh, thank you so much. It's hpennymishkin.com. And let's mention the name of your book. How I See It, A Personal and Historical View of Disability. Because part of it's memoir, where I talk about my own experience, but part of it is about how the legislation, how much it's changed things, and how disability is so differently viewed than it was even when I was growing up. I will intrigue the listener with the following. This country had ugly laws, meaning if you had a disability, you were too ugly to go out, and people shouldn't have to view you. And astonishingly enough, until the ADA was passed in 1990, a restaurant could refuse to seat a disabled person. So it's that recent. I didn't know that. Oh, that. no. So, oh, yeah, no, it's shocking. It's yeah. shocking. But, but it's really changed, and it really makes an enormous difference. But, you know, there's a ways to go, but it's so different. You know, as I said, I know what it was like in the 50s, and I now know what it's like in the 2020s. And I feel very grateful that it's so different. And it makes such a – part of it is that what we want to do is include disabled people, We don't want to exclude them. And without this kind of legislation, that's what happens. Right. You know, so disabled people were excluded when they tried to get a vaccine. I was vaccinated at the beginning of COVID when the vaccine first came out. And it was terrible because it was life and death. But then if the activists, we let people know and and then they change it, which is what they did. And they, they made it easier. So, you know, just saying what you just said, that there's so much more understanding of what it's like and how lucky you are if you don't have a disability, that I think things keep changing and changing in a positive way. And as your analyst said, though, Penny, everybody has something. So, right. So I think we need to keep that in mind, you know, treat each other as we would want to be treated. Well, and also, let me just add this, and we don't necessarily know what they have. Yes, right. Because a lot of times it's invisible. So I think... Just assume if someone asks you for help, they really need it. (laughs) Just assume if someone says, excuse me, they really need it. I simply don't understand. I mean, I'm that way. I'm no doubt that you're that way. And in fact, most people are that way. But just assume it. No one asks for help if they don't need it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. 
Well, oh. you are really an inspiration, Penny Mishkin. Oh, I just have so thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. You had mentioned earlier to me that you have a second book coming out. So I yes, think I we need to earmark that and uh, plan, even if it hasn't come out yet, but plan for a car- con. Another- <laughs> oh, well. I, I will tell you this. This book is called Becoming the Person I Was Meant to Be. Oh, I love a that. Mem- a memoir of a successful psychoanalysis because I think people are just intrigued by it but I'm not writing it under my name because I need to protect it's really really honest and although I have wonderful family members none of us are perfect Hmm. so I don't want anyone to to know that you know my aunt did this or my parents did that and yes but Kate I will let you know and you'll interview me under my pen name Okay. Absolutely. Yes. Instead of my penny name, under my pen name. Thank you so much. Well, you are so welcome. I am just really so inspired by you. And I so appreciate your ease and wanting to share about your life and and doing so in terms of really advocating for all of us. It's for all of us. Yes. Oh, this is the thing. So the disability movement and the reason that, that things got changed stands on the shoulders of the civil rights movement. Ah. And when one person or group gets treated better, the next one will too. It really is, I don't know if exponential is the right word, but they really work synergistically. So the disability movement, which as I said, really didn't start until the 70s, by a college student named Ed Roberts, who was in an iron lung. Can you imagine? Mm. And he went to UC Berkeley. And he and some friends of his started the disability rights movement. It's why we have the ADA today. So when one group gets improvement, the next group gets it too. So we're not just helping someone else. We're also helping ourselves because we really don't know what's going to come our way. Absolutely. Again, many thanks for your passion and dedication. And it's really been so much a privilege to speak with you. And let's just mention the name of your book once again, Penny. It's How I See It. A Personal and Historical View of Disability by H. Penny Mishkin. M-I-S-S-N-S-M-H-K-I-N. Because I hope it brings... There are people who have family members with a disability. So you may be lucky enough not to have one yet, (laughs) (laughs) but it will help you understand other people with more compassion, hopefully, and also understand how you can help them and how you can treat them because... It's not the end of the world. It's a detour. I have just as wonderful a life today as I had before I lost my vision. It's just different. Yes, that's a great way to put it. Wonderful. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, you're welcome. Uh, sure. Thank you so much for providing me this much time to tell my story. I really appreciate it. That brings us to the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Penny Mishkin and Sunday Morning Magazine with Matt Miller from Ferlin Workshop. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email, kated at warm1069.com, and I will get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, find the podcast on our Warm 1069 webpage. Just click on the podcast tab, then either of the show names, and then look for the guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of considering a challenge that we have and finding the gift in it. 
Have a week of the same, and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 106.9. Good morning.